Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're continuing in our study of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 10, verses 11 through 18 this morning. Now, one of the ironies of modern work is that we sit to work and we get up to rest. <laughs> Much of what I do is office-type work, as you can imagine, and I sit in a chair and I read and I write or I counsel. I sit down for work meetings and prayer meetings, except for preaching. Basically, everything I do as a pastor is sitting down. And when I need a break, I get up. I stand, I walk around the office, I chat with other pastors or staff members. If I'm standing, I'm resting. But as you can imagine, that has not been the case for much of human history or for those who have physical, physically active jobs. Those who are sitting are those who are taking a break or who have completed their task. Now, in our passage for this morning... This idea of sitting and standing and what they signify is centrally important. There's a contrast that's being made between the Old Covenant and the work of the priests in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the work of the priests in the New Covenant based upon this sitting and standing dynamic. In verses 11 and 12, we read this and see this contrast. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see, there is no chair in the tabernacle. There is no place to rest in the earthly temple. As the verse says, the priest stands daily at his service. The work of the old covenant priest was never completed. He had to continue this work, repeatedly offering the same sacrifices. He never entered into a time of rest within the temple because the temple work was never done. The sacrifices he offered were not removing guilt. They weren't taking away sins, and so they had to continue to work. They had to continue to sacrifice. They had to continue to make offerings, continue to push that rock up the side of the hill just to have it roll back down on them. They never crossed the goal line, spiked the ball, and did their victory dance. They just kept on offering the same sacrifices, and so they had to stand. But Christ, the high priest of the new covenant, offered his sacrifice once, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. This phrase is significant in a multitude of different ways, but the one I want us to see right now is that sitting at the right hand of God means that the work of Christ has been perfected and completed. He was born, suffered temptation, proclaimed the gospel, trained his disciples. He healed the sick and delivered the oppressed. He fulfilled the law. He humbled himself even to the point of death. He took on the guilt of his people's sin, endured the wrath of God, died. He was buried and he continued under the power of death for a time, but then on the third day rose from the dead, ascended 
to the right hand of the Father and sat down. His saving work has been completed. His sacrifice has been offered. Sin has been taken away. The work is done. Our passage for this morning is the conclusion of the theological section of Hebrews. The author has laid out his case for the superiority of the new covenant in Christ, explaining that it would be foolishness to return to the old covenant. He's explained that Christ is superior to the message of the angels, to the prophecy of Moses, the deliverance of Joshua, or the priesthood of Aaron. He has shown that the new covenant is a better covenant than the old. He spent time explaining these truths from Psalm 110 and Jeremiah 31, and now he offers his theological conclusion. Namely, we know the new covenant is superior to the old Because Christ's work is complete and perfect, and He has sat down. And it is this image that we must look to for assurance of our own salvation. This is how we know that the work of salvation has been completed. Christ is not in heaven working away. Rather, He has offered His sacrifice, and He has taken His seat. So hear now the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you now and we pray that you would give to us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would give us hearts that were receptive, Lord, and that we would see clearly the perfected, finished work of Christ, and that we would not look to our own weak efforts towards salvation, but we would look to Christ and Him alone, and through faith in what He has accomplished, know for certain that the work has been done. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. If you have ever played the game of risk, you know that there comes a point in the game when one player gains such an advantage that their victory is inevitable. In the game of risk, you're trying to conquer every territory on earth. It's this this world-dominating 
game. And you fight battles by rolling dice and collecting different armies and moving them around. And once a statistical advantage has been achieved, there's virtually nothing the other players can do to overcome that advantage. It can become very frustrating when you look at the game and you realize that there's probably another half an hour of the game left, but there's no way that you can win it. As your opponent just step after step methodically decimates every single one of your armies. As you can tell, this pain is fresh for me. (laughs) The game is decided, but you have to endure the humiliating advance of the enemy. Now, in many ways, the work of Christ as reflected in this passage is analogous to a game that's been decided but is yet to be finished. That is to say, salvation has been accomplished, and yet we wait for it to be fully realized. Christ has finished his work. He is sitting. However, he is also waiting for his enemies to be completely destroyed. Look at verses 12 and 13. There we read, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The first aspect of Christ's saving work that we see in this conclusion to the theological section of Hebrews is that Christ has won a victory over God's enemies. There is an enemy, he has evil forces. But Christ has defeated them, and now he is sitting. Throughout the life of Christ, we see this spiritual battle, this spiritual warfare. When his ministry began, immediately following his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. Satan came and tempted him to turn from God's will, and yet Jesus fought these temptations by looking to the Word of God, and he defeated the tempter's power. During his earthly ministry, Jesus continually encountered those who were oppressed by evil spirits, and by speaking his own powerful word, he brought deliverance to those who were oppressed. As he approached the cross, Satan began to increase his work, going after his disciples. And Jesus tells Peter that he was praying for him because the enemy was seeking to sift him like wheat. And Jesus prayed that his faith would not fail. And even when he denied Christ, that he would return and be restored. But the height of Christ's warfare was on the cross. For it was there that he took on the full battle against sin and Satan and death. And while Satan believed that he was gaining the upper hand and even victory in the death of Christ, it was in fact a trap. As one medieval theologian said, Christ set a mousetrap for Satan, which was his own cross, and he set his own blood as if bait for him. This was the very reason that Jesus came into the world. As the book of 1 John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, by submitting to the Father, 
offering his blood, undergoing God's wrath, and dying in our place, Jesus took the decisive and deciding move of this great spiritual battle against sin and Satan, and he won. As John Calvin once commented on the cross, as in a magnificent chariot, he triumphed over his enemies and ours. This victory of Christ over Satan is expressed throughout Scripture. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is pictured as a strong man who has bound Satan and is plundering his property. In Colossians chapter 2, we read, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In the book of Revelation, we read of the work of Christ beginning at his first advent and culminating in his second advent, represented as a thousand-year reign of Christ sitting at the right hand of God. And we read that he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. You see, on the cross, Jesus bound the strong man. He disarmed and triumphed over the spiritual authorities. He defeated death. He seized the ancient serpent, the devil, and threw him into a pit. And now salvation goes forth into the world. You see, the enemy held the nations in darkness for centuries. But once Christ took up his seat on the throne of God, he began his kingly rule and the light of the gospel began to shine forth and the nations began to stream into his kingdom. This is how we know that Christ has accomplished salvation. This is how we have assurance. We see that Christ has won the battle. And even now, as he sits on the throne, he is waiting for all of his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. We must understand this dynamic. Because the victory has been won, but the war continues. The deciding move has been made. Christ has the unconquerable advantage, but Satan continues to wage his battles. Jesus has won the victory, is sitting, but he's also waiting, waiting for the day when he will return not to deal with sin, but to finally end the war through his judgment. It can be difficult to have assurance that Christ has defeated all of his and our enemies, when we see wickedness and evil in the world. It can be hard to trust that Christ is in control, sitting upon His throne when wars in Ukraine and Israel rage on. It can be difficult to believe that Christ has defeated all of His and our enemies when we struggle in our own lives with conflict and pain and we see a spiritual battle raging all around us. When we see abuse and injustice happening in our own lives and in the culture around us, it's hard to trust that Christ has won the decisive battle. But these are merely the flailing about of a defeated foe who knows that he has lost but is seeking with all of his power to take out just a few if he might. But the work of Christ is completed. And therefore we look to the cross 
We see the victory that has been won. And if we would have assurance of our salvation, we must trust that Christ has defeated all of God's enemies and is seated on His throne. Now the phrase that theologians use to describe this dynamic of the new covenant is already not yet. We've run across this phrase already in the book of Hebrews, but it's important for us to have in our mind as we look at what it means that Christ has defeated the enemies of God. He has already done it, but not yet has this victory found its full fulfillment in this world. But we also see that it is in relation to us as well. You see, just as Christ won the victory over his enemies but waits for their final submission, so too has Christ perfected his people but waits for their complete sanctification. Look at verse 14, and we see this dynamic playing out. There we read, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. When we reflect upon our own lives of sin and brokenness, we can wonder how it is that Christ is sitting. How is it that the book of Hebrews says that he has perfected for all time his people? When I look at my own life, I can see that there are plenty of things that could keep Jesus busy for a long time. Jesus, why are you sitting down? There's a lot of work that has to be done. I'm definitely not complete. And Everyone who is honest with themselves can say the same thing. We all need a lot of work. But what this verse is saying is that within each Christian, there is this already not yet dynamic at work. You have been perfected in Christ for all time, but simultaneously you are being sanctified. You who are in Christ by faith are both a saint and simultaneously a sinner. You are perfect, but you are still needing to grow in holiness. Now, the first thing that we must understand is what the text means that we have been perfected for all time. You see, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he acts as our representative. He is the head of the covenant, and as such, he has the right to act for us, And his work on our behalf was of such quality and of such power, it's said to be perfect. He did exactly what he was called to do by the Father. And there was nothing lacking in his life or his death or his victory over death and his resurrection. And therefore, everyone who is joined to him by faith are accounted as perfect. Because you have received the righteousness of his life. In Christ, you have died to sin. In Christ, you have been raised to new life. And even as Paul says, in Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Because Christ represents you, and because Christ is perfect, therefore you are perfect. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are perfect in Christ? Are you willing 
in faith to take on that life-altering identity of one who has been perfected in the sight of God? Are you willing to believe that when God looks at you, he does not judge you for your failures and your shortfalls? That he doesn't judge you for your past no matter how egregious it was? That he isn't waiting for you to do more, to pray more, to give more, to suffer more, or to love more? Do you believe that his love for you isn't contingent or conditional upon your performance to him? Rather, that he set his love upon you before you did anything? That he chose you in Christ and Christ died for you while you were still a sinner? It's time for us to drop all of the walls and barriers that we place between ourselves and God. It's time to stop making excuses about how we're not good enough, that we're not worthy enough, that we're a second-class Christian. Because if you are in Christ, God the Father looks at you through the lens of Jesus Christ and he declares, you are my perfect child. But you know you're not perfect. And you wonder, why is it that Christ is sitting down? Maybe there needs to be another sacrifice. Maybe there needs to be some more work done on God's part. But what this verse tells us is that we have been perfected in Christ. And yet we continue on this path of being sanctified. This dynamic plays out in the book of 1 John. There we read in chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We are perfected now. We are God's children now. But what we will become has not yet appeared. We are growing into that identity. We are being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And when Christ appears, when Christ returns, then this work of sanctification will be complete. It's difficult for us to have assurance that we are saved because we look at ourselves and we think, I don't look very saintly. We think if those who are saved have been perfected, then I don't fit that bill. But our assurance doesn't come from our perfection, but rather from looking to the perfection of Christ and his work and in faith believing that that has been given to you and seeing that he has sat down because his work is perfect. Now, if we had to summarize the gospel in one short sentence, there are many different places we might go in the Word of God, but 1 Timothy 1.15 would be a good place to start. There, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Okay, we got, we got something good here, Paul is saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
At the heart of Christianity is a message about how God deals with the problem of sin. And the answer is that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. Sin brings with it a multitude of confounding and difficult consequences. It brings disorder and frustration, broken relationships, pain, sickness, sorrow, fear, decay, and death. Westminster Shorter Catechism 19 asks, what is the misery of that estate into which man fell? And the answer is that all mankind by their fall lost communion with God and are under His wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself and the pains of hell forever. That is the consequence of sin in our lives and that's what God is seeking to address in the work of Jesus Christ. Because God was not willing to leave his people in this place of pain and misery and death and alienation. It was his purpose to deliver us out of this estate by the work of his son. It was his purpose to send Jesus into the world so that all who look to him in faith will be saved from their sin. Look at verse 17. There we read of this truth that has been prophesied in the book of Jeremiah, culminating in the New Testament, the new covenant work in Christ. There the promise is made, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Why is Jesus sitting? Why isn't he up doing some priestly work? Why don't churches have altars any longer? Why isn't Jesus on the cross? Why is the cross bare? Why isn't he up there now? Because there is no longer any need for a sin offering. Jesus has for all time made the one final offering that's taken away the guilt of sin. And God says, because of the work of Jesus Christ, I remember your sins no more. And this is how we have assurance of our salvation. This is how we know that we have been delivered from God's wrath and the curse of our sin. We have a Savior who is confidently sitting down His work 100% completed. But I know the living out of these truths can make us nervous. We can doubt We can wonder if our sin has truly been forgiven. But what the author is telling us is that we are to not look to our own lives, but rather we are to look to Christ. Our works are tainted. They are weak. They are incomplete. But the work of Jesus Christ to save sinners is perfect and it is finished. And Christ sits down at the right hand of the Father. Our verses for this morning again are the conclusion of this great theological section in the book of Hebrews. Now there's a lot more that we'll cover in this book, but the main focus will turn from what Christ has accomplished to how it should shape our lives. We'll look at chapter 11, where we'll be encouraged to live by faith. Chapter 12, to continue the race that has been set before us. Chapter 13, to grow in brotherly love and submission to our leaders and more. But we can't move forward without first reflecting on what has brought us to this point. Namely, that Christ 
and the new covenant in Christ is better. He is better than the angels, than Moses, than Joshua, better than Aaron and his line of Levites that came after him. For Jesus Christ is the culmination and the fulfillment of that that has gone before. He is the substance of the temple, the prayers and the sacrifices. He is the one to whom the whole old covenant is pointing. For in his life, death, and resurrection, he has accomplished once and for all the complete salvation of his people. And now he sits down enthroned in heaven, the victorious king. And therefore we must worship him. We must glorify him. We must trust him and love him. And we must never turn back to our old paths, but continue to wait eagerly for the day when what has already been perfected in Christ will become our possession. For all eternity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you at this time. We thank you that you inspired each and every word in this letter to the Hebrews, and that you preserved it throughout the generations, that we might hear your word proclaimed, the truth of what Christ has accomplished. We pray, O oh God, that all that we have learned throughout the several months, that we would not put to the side, but that we would hold strong to these truths. And as we go forward into the concluding chapter of Hebrews, Lord, that we would not seek to live these things out by our power, but that we would continually look to our victorious King, knowing that it's through His power and His Spirit that we live for Your glory. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.